by the ordinance of covenanting to week 34. We're going to be looking at seasons of covenanting. Fourth term of communion, public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. So we're going to look briefly at the, the whole idea that there are general grounds for the practice of covenanting in any uh, at any given time and what they are. And then we're going to look specifically at the idea that there are certain times, certain particular uh, situations in which historically the church finds itself that are more appropriate and are, in fact, um, providential indicators that the church should be entering into covenants, uh, that they should be engaging themselves explicitly uh, taking hold of the covenant of grace, explicitly owning that covenant with God and all of the obligations of the covenant, and also looking for uh, the power of the Spirit of God to fulfill all that that covenant entails. <clears throat> and then we're going to look um, at the end at some some things that, a couple of points that we can make about covenanting in general, um, all in preparation to begin looking more specifically in the coming weeks at the National Covenant and then the Solemn League and Covenant, and then uh, the idea of covenant renewal and Arkansas. And, and, uh, so we've got more things to cover, but we're going to start getting very specific about um what we want to examine. Uh, so, <clears throat> question one, what are the general grounds for the practice of covenanting at any given time? The first thing that we can say about it is that the duty is never unsuitable. I want to look, uh, begin looking here at 1 Kings 8, verses 56 to 61. Blessed be the Lord that he will rest unto his according to all the I say out one word of promise was with us, the fathers, let him leave us and find our fathers unto him. The Lord be nigh to the Lord our God day and night. So we talk about the doctrine of covenanting. Uh, the first thing that we notice or should notice is there's a sense in which this is something which is uh, appropriate in in some respect it's it's always appropriate uh, behavior or appropriate practice for Christians and um, if you haven't read William Guthrie's Christian's Great Interest it is uh, probably the single most searching book you will ever read uh, on on whether or not discerning whether or not you really are a believer, 
Um, you should read it. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Uh, it ends with a, a pretty thorough discussion about personal covenanting. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, generally took a personal covenant at the beginning of every year. Uh, he would re-engage himself to stop and reflect and and commit himself to a certain course of of um, uh, study and 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 in practice and um, you know he was looking to become more and more sanctified. So this is something which is highly useful and. Um, Again, when we understand what's going on in covenanting, that you're taking hold of the covenant of grace, you're making application to God for the grace to persevere in that covenant and so on. <clears throat> There's nothing about any of that that would be inappropriate for you uh, to, uh, to engage in that exercise really at any given time. Now, we know men have frequently and properly esteemed the exercise as one that should have be had recourse to only on some great emergency. So, for example, look at Psalm 66, 13, and 14. Psalm 66, verses 13. <clears throat> I will go into my house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Yeah, there's, there is this human, um, and, and I'm not attributing it to the psalmist, but there's this very human uh, instinct to enter into an oath or vow to God when you're in trouble. You, you may have heard the, the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, people very often when they're in trouble... But when they really want something, when they're <clears throat> when they're um, in a position where they maybe feel like something they desire slipping away, they start to make promises to God, and uh, they they enter into vows and and oaths and so on. And of course, if you do that, <clears throat> provided what you've uh, promised to do is is lawful, you ought to follow through. Um, you should make promises you don't intend to keep, particularly to God. But that said, there is a certain amount of superstitiousness that you need to resist. And I'm not saying the psalmist had that when he entered into that covenant, but a lot of times when people are unbelievers or their their faith is weak they tend to fall into that um, making of vows and again you know we're not bound by unlawful oaths and vows but um, if you bind yourself to something lawful uh, you you better pay and you see the psalmist doing that. So it's really improper <clears throat> in the thinking of people to think that 
<clears throat> that that's the only time or even the best time to uh, make an oath or take a vow or make a covenant. It's not. Uh, you need to keep in mind something we've talked about in a number of different ways, and that is rash oaths and vows um, never are, are uh, <clears throat> uh, truly acceptable uh, because they, they've not been made to the glory of God. They've been made uh, for very different reasons. And so whatever the, um, the occasion, which is what we're going to talk about in, in the next question, there are pr pr occasions which are more proper. But whatever that occasion, that is not uh, to be the, the determining point. Right? The glory of God is what is being sought with respect to that occasion. But a lot of times rash vows, you're just looking for the you know the quick and easy answer to whatever your perceived problem might be. Whether it's, you know, your life is in danger, or your love life is in danger, or your economic life is in danger, or, you know, whatever you think might be uh, in, in immediate harm's way, right? You, you have this sense that there's something... Uh, some doom coming, and you want to enlist God on your side. <coughs> Be sure that that is uh, moderated by um, by a proper concern for the glory of God. <coughs> because if you can't really see the glory of God in the thing, it's probably not a good idea to be entering into such uh oaths and vows. Anyway, <clears throat> as it's sinful to defer religious exercises until affliction, uh, presenting the prospect of death, constrained to attempt them, so it's wrong to imagine that the pressure of calamity principally should constrain to make solemn vows. So this is just continuing uh, what we've been talking about. But look what happens when there's a vow made here uh, without really giving proper weight <clears throat> when there's a, a present um, calamity befalling and the, um, the concern is for the moment rather than being focused on the, the declarative glory of God. So I want to look at Judges 11, 30, 35, and 36. Judges 11, 30, and Jotham bowed a vow unto the Lord and said, Thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands. And verses 35 and 36. And it came to pass when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord. And I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. <coughs> the Lord hath taken vengeance for 
Okay, so I, I don't want to get into the whole question of what exactly Jephthah vowed to do with his daughter, but you gather from the context that whatever it was, it was very unpleasant, uh, very, very much contrary to his um, his natural affections toward her, but it it was also the result of waiting until that moment when everything was uh, crashing in, right? When it looked like they were going to be in a lot of trouble with their enemies. It, he waits until that moment. And that's never a good time. <clears throat> the outcome um, is, you, you're, you're really in a sense... Uh, rolling the divine dice, as it were, right? And you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, it's something that we ought to be aware of doing. And generally in the Bible, when you see people doing this, it's somebody like uh, Herod making his rash vow that ends up, uh, he ends up keeping, it's an ungodly oath uh, to behead John the Baptist, <clears throat> or uh, Ahasuerus, where he uh, promises Esther up to half of the kingdom, um, and even though that turns out well, it does it turns out well despite him, not because of him, right? So it's not a good idea when your passions are inflamed f for whatever reason. Not good to make these kinds of oaths and vows. Uh, instead, the exercise of personal covenanting should be practiced habitually. In other words, you should constantly reflect on who you are and your relation to God with respect to this covenant. Again, this is a good reason to read Guthrie's Christian's Great Interest because it will help clarify your thinking and not only about your spiritual estate, but it will clarify your thinking about this idea of, of personal covenanting. But it should be habitual. I want to look at six, uh, Psalm 61, 5 and 8. Okay, so, we see that the, the psalmist is indicating to us that there was, for him, uh, there was a, an habitual practicing of this exercise of personal covenanting. <clears throat> that he was doing what he was doing. Uh, praising God, sacrificing to God. All of that was being done with an eye to this idea that he had entered into covenant with God, he'd taken hold of that covenant of grace, and he was, in fact, consciously exercising himself with respect to that. All right, it's not enough that the heart be once given to God. When this has been is really been done, it's a great attainment. 
but it must again and again be surrendered in renewed acts of self-dedication in order to the maintenance of anything like fidelity and steadfastness in his service. So look at uh, Proverbs 23, 26 and 2 Corinthians 8, 5. So there there needs to be a continual spiritual inventory which includes conscious reflection upon uh, this idea that if you are a believer, you're in covenant with God, that you should be consciously uh, making your appeal to take hold of that covenant and consciously seeking uh, to fulfill that covenant um, while at the same time receiving the benefit and promises of that covenant. But a daily recognition of our relationship to Christ is full of comfort and encouragement and is at the same time invaluable as a means of sanctification. So look at Deuteronomy 6 5. How do we love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might? In order to do that, we have to continually yield ourselves, right? Heart and soul, with all our might, and that's that's done uh, primarily by covenant, by uh, taking hold of God's covenant, by renewing that covenant, continually renewing your um, covenant commitment, right? Which is covenanting. Renewing that, taking uh, cognizance of what that entails, and and um, again making and taking your spiritual pulse, you know, making a, an inventory, taking a, that, that spiritual inventory. Am I making my calling and election sure? Am I living and doing? what this requires of me. You know, the, the Spirit of God in that covenant is a promise to rise up to meet you in your obedience. <clears throat> you know, if you wonder why you're struggling with this or that sin, the Spirit of God will rise up to meet you in obedience. But in disobedience, the Spirit of God is drawing away. So your disobedience is not only defeating for the moment, but it is it is defeating you in the future. And conversely, your obedience within the covenant is increasing your future obedience because it's it's not only preparing you to receive more grace, that obedience rises to meet the Spirit of God working in that covenant to work in you the promise of that covenant. <clears throat> all right, it's a great and precious privilege to be able in all difficulties and all dangers, 
to speak of the great Jehovah in the language of Paul, as we see in Acts 27, 23. Acts 27, verse 23. There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. Yeah, Paul can say, whose I am and whom I serve. <clears throat> And how is it he knew that? He was, in fact, uh, continually about this taking hold of the covenant and making use of that covenant. But he was not drawing back from God. He was drawing near to God continually. Yes. <clears throat> right, and there, there's something peculiar about covenanting uh, that really it's something you can you can access, you can do uh, virtually anywhere you are. Right, you can reflect upon and act upon that. So in making your petitions to God, you know, you, you can join with that covenanting. But again, <coughs> um, I, I think, and I, and I can't recommend it enough, William Guthrie's Christian's Great Interest, you know, John, John Owen, who wrote, um, uh, I think nearly 20 folio, big, big volumes of of material. He was uh, he's often been called the Prince of the Puritans. And John Owen said that there was more divinity in that little book of Guthrie's than in everything he ever wrote. And um, I'm not the biggest fan of Guthrie, or excuse me, of uh, Owen, but um, I, I, I would agree with him that... Uh, Guthrie's book is, um, in some respects, <clears throat> it's one of the most um, unique and, and interesting books to come out of Scotland uh, at the time of the Second Reformation, and probably um, one of the few books, along with uh, Howie Scott's Worthies and uh, Thomas Boston's Fourfold State of Man. I think uh, Guthrie's Christian's Great Interest would be one of those books that at one time everyone in Scotland probably had a copy, or just about everyone. <clears throat> and they read them. And I would, again, certainly recommend reading it. It will be of immense help to you at all kinds of levels, particularly uh, with what we're talking about tonight. Right, it's a powerful argument in applying for deliverance from evil of whatever kind uh, that is employed by the psalmist in Psalm uh, 119.94. Uh, <clears throat> right, and, and what does the psalmist say? He can say, I am thine. Right, save me. How can he say, I am thine? I am thine, he can say, because he's given himself to God. And the only way you can do that is by covenant, right? I mean, that uh, creator 
creature distinction means that you are gods by absolute possession. <clears throat> but by covenant, you, <clears throat> you voluntarily make yourself over to be his. And that's really the argument of the psalmist. Right? He's looking for deliverance from evil. And he doesn't just appeal to that general, you know, you made me, therefore I'm your possession. Anybody could say that. But there's a peculiar way in which he belonged to God. And that way is the way of covenant. By covenant, he had given himself over. Though the exercises of social covenanting are not practicable so frequently as those of that which is personal, there's no reason why they, any more than any other, should be reckoned as incumbent only on occasions of an extraordinary nature. It's Psalm 22, 25. So, we're saying that there's a sense in which um, as much as it's really appropriate any time to make a covenant or an oath or vow to God in personal covenanting, it's hard to see how there would be any different rule with regard to public social covenanting. Uh, It's really just the same thing, but at a corporate level. Now, that said we do recognize that there is an impracticable aspect of doing it at just any old time. When you're involving a lot of people, the more people in some respects, the more time that there will need to be for proper instruction, a proper preparation, proper really proper uh, establishing of of all that is necessary for there to be a, a, a good exercise of covenanting. And so, because of that, the church has tended not to just do it at any old time. And and we'll see this more when we start addressing more of the historical, although you may remember some of the historical examples last time. Uh, There were uh, five covenants that I mentioned leading up to the national covenant. And uh, to be clear, there were more than that, but there were five that really began to take in the public interest in our, and were building toward that national covenant that we're talking about um, in the future. <clears throat> Those five, all of them, are defined by things we're going to be talking about in the next question. Right? There, there are grounds which suggested those five in particular and are, in a sense, preparatory 
in a particular sense for that kind of public social covenanting. <clears throat> but again, that said, it's not, um, it, it shouldn't be understood that we're saying that these are the only times appropriate. Right? What we're saying is, in this next, next question, uh, what we're getting at are those times which are particularly indicated by providence <clears throat> as being times when it would be uh, not just inopportune, but uh, in a sense spiritually negligent for the church to avoid covenanting. All right, so let's look at question two. <clears throat> what are the special grounds for the practice of covenanting at any given time? All right. The special grounds are this. Uh, we know that there are special seasons <coughs> from which we're getting the, the title of this week's study, Seasons of Covenanting. Special seasons uh, that give peculiar calls to the duty in all its variety. So um, I've, I've sketched out five here. Uh, <clears throat> it's actually, I think, one more than John Cunningham lists in his book. Uh, but um, in looking around, there are probably couple of other reasons that could have been given as well, but these seem to be the five that uh, are mentioned most when this particular topic is uh, considered. <coughs> so first of all, the first special season is when we have times of hazard and distress. By displaying in relief the vanity of all the aids that mere creatures could afford, and finding men looking around for comfort and support, invite with a power peculiar to themselves to look to him who is a present help to his people in every time of need, and cordially by covenanting to respond to the divine invitation given in Scripture. So, look at Psalm 50, verse 15. <clears throat> now again, uh, in the previous question, we said this isn't the only time, right? but understanding that this, the church's situation, uh, this is a special time, and we're really going to move through a, a, a number of different kinds of situations. Uh, this is probably the most, um, uh, I, I suppose, the most uh, existential uh, threat <clears throat> as far as seasons of covenanting would go. But what you're doing in covenanting, and God tells you to do it, call upon me, right, in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver. 
<coughs> and elsewhere, <coughs> uh, we're, we're told, you know, this poor man called upon the Lord, the psalmist says, and he delivered him. Right? He called in his day of trouble. So times of hazard, times of distress, are times when the church, the church reaches this point where we have to ask ourselves, are we going to trust in the strength of men or are we going to put our trust in God? Right? Is God going to be our deliverer or are we trusting in something that we could do? And covenanting, <coughs> covenanting in a peculiar way is surrendering the, the plight of the church to the Lord and asking him to, to um, protect and preserve and, and bring the church through that. So, uh, when the church is exposed to danger from the combined assaults of her enemies, for example, look at Revelation 12.12. 12. So the, the church is exposed to <clears throat> a lot of danger uh, in history. And we know that, you know, Satan has been cast down to the earth and that his time is short and he's going to make short work on the church if he can. And so when the enemies of the people of God begin to combine, when we see you know, the uh, the enemies getting together. Remember what the Bible says. Herod and Pilate had been enemies. But when it came time to crucify Jesus, they actually managed to get themselves together. Right? They actually fix the problem. They become friends again. They're willing to covenant. Right? These And, and this happens a lot. We see this in the Bible. The enemies of the people of God. People who, from history we know they would have been at each other's throats <clears throat> and probably were but when it came time to pick on Israel well then all of a sudden they were able to get together they were all able to come together so people who are not naturally allies and we'll, we still see this today when it comes to the church and the truth of God, they will still combine in order to make war. And that, we're saying that's a good time for the church to respond by covenant, right? by covenanting. <clears throat> so, after the return of the captives from Babylon, we have the case of Sanballat, Geshem, the Arabian, Tobiah, the Ammonite chief men, and the great neighboring nations and types of their kingdoms. Uh, they're confederated together for the ruin of the church. Look at Ezra 4.13. Ezra 4.13. Yeah, these guys, you know, you would think... <clears throat> that they already had their 
<clears throat> their glory, right? Their pound of flesh out of Israel. You would think that they were uh, happier, would have been happy that they had managed to uh, pretty well subdue them. But the moment Israel starts to get itself back together, they start to rebuild Jerusalem, they're building the walls, the enemies of the church and people of God are there conspiring against them. They're already accusing them of doing things that they haven't done. Uh, They've expressed no intention of doing. But they're trying to get things stirred up against them. Remember, the captive exiles who had returned were few, poor, and their farms were desolate. Look at Nehemiah 5, 8. Nehemiah 5, verse 8. And I said unto them, we, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, sold unto the And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Yeah, they, the fact is, they return, and they're they're impoverished by the experience of being in captivity. They've lost everything. Uh, They don't really have any resources of their own. And yet they're concerned to build Jerusalem. They're concerned to build the walls of the city. They want to rebuild the temple. They want to reestablish the true worship of God. And here they are, even though they're in such a bad state, the enemies, as soon as they start to look like they might get somewhere, the enemies are banding together to beat them down again. But what do they do? Well, they confess their sins, as we should do, without delay, and they renew the covenants of their fathers. Look at Nehemiah 9, 36 to 38. Yeah, so the answer, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the answer to their cast down condition, the the um, the fact that their enemies are combined against them is they are going to renew covenant. But they're going to enter into covenant. They're not going to sit back and just let this pass, but they make it a special point. They confess their sins to God. They set forth their case historically, uh, where they are and, and how desperate their condition is. And then pledging themselves to God, they, they cast their, their um, entire fortune upon him. I mean, they're not... <clears throat> They're not doing so blindly, but in faith they are. Uh, they're taking hold of those covenant promises, and they're beseeching God to make deliverance, and they're trusting that He will intervene on their behalf. 
And by the way, um, quite frankly, everywhere along the, the every step along the way, as they're returning from captivity, we see God intervening in miraculous ways. Um, not parting of the Red Sea necessarily miraculous ways, but uh, just things like moving the heart of the king to Cyrus to uh, to send them back and to encourage them to build the temple. And they, they find help uh, again and again from unexpected sources. Now, <clears throat> our own times are fraught with danger to the church. We want to look at Revelation 11, uh, 3 to 7. And then Revelation 12, verses 12 to 17. And 11, verses 12 And I will give power unto my two witnesses to prophesy a thousand and two hundred and four days clothed in sackcloth, to olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeded out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in his mouth be killed. The power to shut heaven, that it rain out in the days of the prophecy, and the power over water to turn into blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. But the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he is but a short time. When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he was to the woman which brought forth the man's child. And he was born to the woman who was the woman of the great evil, that she might fall into the glorious of her face. For time and times and half a time, the face of his burden. He was water as a flood after the woman, that he might help her to take away the flood. He helped the woman. So there we're told uh, that there would be a time of great apostasy when the church would be driven into the wilderness, that there would be uh, persecutions, that there would be a casting down, that uh, this time would would last uh, a time, times, and half a time. Uh, sometimes the Bible calls it three and a half years, sometimes 42 months, sometimes 1260 days. Um, this is the length of the apostasy. And during this time in particular, the church is in great danger <clears throat> because the truth is out of favor in the world in a very peculiar way. Uh, it, it is out of favor in a world which now has the gospel, right? The, the world has the gospel. The apostles have carried the gospel into the world and yet there has been a great apostasy from this. And, and this is going to last for 1260 days, which um, I think are 1260 years, <clears throat> because prophetically 
uh, you usually have a day for a, a year for a day. And so, um, we are somewhere in and probably near the end of, or maybe just out of that range. It's hard to tell exactly uh, as we get toward the end, but I'm, I'm sure we're getting toward the end of it. <clears throat> Nonetheless, it's still a dangerous time. Uh, the complexion, animating spirit, and administration of every civil government in the world is adverse to the government of Messiah, the prince of the kings of the earth. Look at Revelation 16, 14. So during this time, we know that the spirits of devils are going forth and they're influencing the kings of the earth. And that means that every civil government is, for a time, going to be hostile to the claims of Christ during this period of time. All the organized systems of worship, the systems which are confederated with these bad thrones, give their power to the beast in the war which the dragon wages with the lamb. Look at Revelation 17, uh, 12 to 14. The Messiah calls on all his followers to unite in solemn covenanting for the city of our God. Look at I want to compare Jeremiah four two and Isaiah sixty five sixteen. So the the idea is that during this time of of um, trouble, the time of the apostasy, uh, the fact is that people are going to um, uh, people are going to fall away. They're, the governments of the world are going to be angry with. Uh, the, the truth, the Christian religion, uh, they're going to be hostile to it. And in the end, um, this is going to be reversed uh, first by the people of God covenanting and ultimately really by the nations of the earth covenanting. And that'll be uh, the time that is called the millennium uh, when, when all of that is, is set apart. <clears throat> All right. Second, a second uh, time or season <clears throat> that calls for uh, covenanting is when 
Religion is low. And when error and vice and ungodliness prevail, the hosts of darkness are successful. Uh, but their clamor is unfit to drown the cry, so fitted to inspire with holy zeal, then urging to special devotedness to the Lord's cause. Look at his, uh, uh, Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Yeah, so when when the cause of true religion is low, when there's error and vice and ungodliness everywhere, um, this is a time when the church, the witnessing church should be hearing uh, that call of, of God, you know, who is on the Lord's side. So, for seven years in the reign of Athaliah, an impious and cruel queen, the whole kingdom of Judah became debased by idolatry and gross immorality, except for Jehoiada, the priest, and a few others. I want to look at 2 Chronicles 23, 1. 2 Chronicles 23, verse 1. And in the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself, took the captains of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jeroham, and Ishmael the son of Jehohanan, Azariah the son of Obed, and the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat the son of Zikri, in the covenant with him. So, we, he... he in order to effect the Reformation, Jehoiada, the pious priest, brought chosen officers into the temple of the Lord and made a covenant with them. And it's confirmed in 2 Kings and then at the coronation of Josiah by the reformers, they renewed their covenant. Second Kings eleven seventeen. So the idea is this. There are there are a few who are pious and holy. There is great declension in Israel. How do they bring about what's the um, the hoped for rev uh, revival, which is actually going to be a separate point here, but how do they bring about um, that revival? You know, what do they do in this time of of religious declension? They covenant. In other words, they, they don't want things to get any lower. So they want to stop that. They covenant. All this was done to secure the blessing of Christ on his own ordinance. By increasing their faith, by promoting mutual confidence and harmonious cooperation in the hallowed work of reforming both church and nation. Look at 2 Chronicles 
So, <clears throat> what they're seeking by covenanting is they want the blessing of God on what they're doing, right? They're taking hold of, of uh, Christ. Uh, they are doing so using his own ordinance. They want to promote confidence and harmonious cooperation in reformation. And they're doing it in a time and a place where true religion had been in great decline. <coughs> All right, the temple of the Lord was repaired as a result of this. The administration of the nation restored in purity. So a whole generation of peace and prosperity in the church and nation and hundreds of thousands of souls prepared for heavenly mansions. Uh, the, in other words, the, the result, uh, the um, consequence of what they do is it, it spreads blessing upon the whole nation. Get 2 Kings 12, verses 4 through 15. Workmen, 
<clears throat> so they have um, they've made this covenant, and as a result, uh, they're they they are committed to this repair. Um, they focus their attention. They focus their their um, expenditures on making these repairs, and all of this, of course, is to the benefit of everyone who's a true believer. They're all going to benefit from this, and all because they covenant at a time, a low watermark for true religion. But such are blessed fruits of covenanting uh, to see these kinds of ends meet. Second Chronicles 15, 14, and 15, and Psalm 103, 17, and 18. Second Chronicles 15, verses 14 and 15. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and <coughs> shouting and trumpets and the cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Psalm um, 103 verses. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Right. So, covenanting. Um, covenanting is, in fact, a means to a peculiar kind of blessing, covenant blessings. And those are exactly the kinds of blessings that they're seeking when religion has uh, fallen into such low estate, when the temple is in such disrepair, when everything is, in fact, arrayed against the cause of the true faith. Uh, and, and the fact is, Christ has always smiled most propitiously on this ordinance. There's always, there always seems to be some uh, good outcome, even if it's not an extended, uh, some sort of extended blessing. Nonetheless, there's always a blessing in it. And there's always, I, I think, um, uh, something very forward-looking in it uh, with respect to the church. Look at Second Chronicles 29.10. <clears throat> yeah, the, the covenant is to seek the Lord. Why? They want to turn away his fierce wrath. What, what's their concern? God's wrath is against them precisely because of covenant, uh, breach of covenant, right? They've broken covenant. They've moved, <clears throat> they've moved outside of, of that safety that is represented by the covenant. And this small group of people are saying, no, we're stepping back into that that circle, that protective bond. And from there, they're, you know, they're seeking to um, uh, secure the, the testimony for the true religion. And in turn, over time, uh, that becomes something of which uh, all who are really 
true believers in Israel are going to take hold of that, what they're, what they're doing. Right. So when, when there are times of hazard and distress, good time for the church to engage in social covenanting. When there are times when religion is at a low and error and vice and, and ungodliness are prevailing, good time for social covenanting. There's another time, a good, another good time for social covenanting, and that is um, whenever there's any important public work to be performed. <clears throat> so look at Joshua 24, 25. The, the fact is that any auspicious undertaking in church or state, uh, when you have a public work, that it's a good time to mark that with covenanting. You want God to smile on that undertaking, whether, again, church or state. So preparatory to the organization of church and commonwealth, the people entered into a public vow and covenant at Horeb. I'm talking about Israel, with the formation of Israel. We get Exodus 24, 3, 7, and 8. <clears throat> So <clears throat> God enters into this covenant with them, uh, this covenant uh, that, as we're going to see in just a moment, it's really a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant, but it is taking them in now not only as individuals but as corporate uh, corporate persons, church, nation, the commonwealth. So this most solemn transaction did not supersede the Abrahamic covenant as some appear to have thought in Galatia. Look at Galatians 3, 15, and 17. So the covenant that was confirmed in Christ was the covenant with Abraham. Right? The law, which was given 430 years after with Moses, does not disannul that. It actually confirms that. Right? But it confirms it now at a broader societal level. Uh, there, there is a confirmation of, of that organization into church and commonwealth. Uh, the transaction at Horeb was, in fact, a renovation and development of the covenant made with Abraham. 
We can see this when we look at Deuteronomy 5, 2, and 3, and Psalm 105, 8 to 10. Deuteronomy 5, verses 10 to 3. <clears throat> the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. <clears throat> Psalm 105, verses 8 to 10. Again, remember this covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which God that he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. It prepared their fathers. Look at Deuteronomy 29, 10 to 15. Deuteronomy 10. Here this day I will be before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and that stranger that is in thy camp, from the keeper of thy wood, unto the drawer of thy water, thou that, shouldest, that thou shouldest enter into the covenant with the Lord thy God, in those so they um They're renewing covenant, and the covenant they're renewing is the one that was made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. It's not a new covenant. It's the same covenant. It's not something uh, that is peculiar to them, but it is the continuation of that same covenant obedience and faithfulness. The only difference is the demands of the covenant <clears throat> are now being <clears throat> uh, they're being made not only upon individuals and families but upon the church and commonwealth of the people of Israel. They're forming themselves into a church and into a commonwealth. And they're acknowledging in the instituting of those things <clears throat> that they are, in fact, <clears throat> under that covenant. And I, I, would, I would even say that, to, to a large extent, that the church is already established with Abraham. Right? But the national church is what we're talking about here. So with the formation of <clears throat> the Commonwealth, <clears throat> at the time the Commonwealth is being formed, the church is being established. And that's really what we're talking about. Now, the fact is, we live at a time when the kingdoms of this world are in the agonies of their death struggle. And they must soon die. Look at Daniel 7, 23 to 26. 
22-26, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall shut it down and break it in pieces. <coughs> and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to continue right into the end. So Daniel talks about uh, the the timing, uh, the the time of the um, division of the the fourth kingdom into ten kingdoms, and that that same time, times and half a time, that that great apostasy, and he says at the end of it, you know, there this is all going to give way. We're watching it give way now. We're watching uh, the European nations into which the Roman Empire split. They're, they're tottering. It's hard to say how long this will go on. <clears throat> it's been going on for some time, but there is something going on. The spasmodic and convulsive throes amongst the European republics demonstrate that a crisis of... of Great magnitude is near at hand. Look at Daniel So what what we can tell from that is that the uh, again that that the Roman Empire would divide into ten uh, kingdoms. Uh, those ten kingdoms have actually uh, continued down to the present. The ten major uh, national entities that have uh, continued to um, characterize Europe. Uh, clearly talking about Europe, and yet we're told that there's a time coming when they too will be overcome by the kingdom of the stone, which is talking about the messianic empire, when Christ's kingdom will eventually overtake and rule over them, uh, that they're not able to cling together like the Roman empire. And we see that even now. With the uh, with all the problems we're having with the European Union, 
right? It was just, the European Union, by the way, was just another attempt by the Roman Church. It started in the, I think, the 50s um, to try to to um, gain a, some sort of of um, unified Europe that would be responsive uh, and and manipulable by the Roman Church. But we know that at the end of this period, right, when we get to the end of the time, times and half a time, <clears throat> that 1260 years, uh, sometime after that, we're told very explicitly, when this comes to an end, that the saints of the Most High will take the kingdom. And, the, and we think that's soon. They will soon take the kingdom. Look at Daniel 7, 17, 18, 22, and 27. <laughs> All right, so um, at the time when this when the saints actually uh, take the kingdom, when they're in fact able to overcome <coughs> all of these uh all of these um, <clears throat> adverse uh, circumstances, <clears throat> and when the um, kings of the earth no longer give their power to the beast, and so on, then the saints of God take possession, and when they take possession, we are going to see a radical change in the character of all of the nations, not only of Europe, but of the world. Right, the church, then, when this happens, is about to enter on the performance of duties like those of Israel in the wilderness. You get Acts uh, 7, 45 to 47, Romans 11, 15, and Revelation 20, verse 4. Okay, so <clears throat> what is what's going on? What will happen? <clears throat> well, when when um, Joshua, who's a type of Jesus, takes Israel into the promised land, what do they have to do? They have to drive out all of the enemies, right? They have to subdue all of the enemies and put down all of all of those who resist. 
that is what the church will do when it's time to inherit the kingdom. When, when in fact, all of these kingdoms start to change. There's going to be a converting of the Jews, which will be life from the dead for the Gentile nations, as Paul says in Romans 11, verse 15. And how are we going to know that the Jews are converted? Well, I would say one thing that we'll see is they're going to covenant. Right? How are the, we going to know the nations are converted? They're going to covenant. Okay, and, and all of this, the reason why is there's a great work to be done, which is to take dominion. That will be the period of the millennium. Why does it say that the, the souls of those who've been beheaded are going to live and reign for a thousand years during that time? Are we saying that there are going to be a bunch of, of um, headless souls walking around? No. The point is that the spirit of the martyrs, the, the spirit of those who occupy the place of the witnessing church, those who've preserved the true religion, in doctrine and practice, that's what will be the prevalent doctrine and practice during the millennium. That will characterize that period of time. So the commonwealth at that time, and uh, even before that time, the commonwealth ought to be uh, organized on Christian principles. That's why the Reformed Presbyterian Church witnesses to that. And so, too, the mutual relations of church and state, and all the rights of man secured on a scriptural covenanted basis, as at Horeb. So look at Revelation 11.15. Okay, so at the end of the reign of Antichrist, Right. We're going to see, at the end of that 1260-year period, we're going to be looking for the uh, the downfall of the Roman Church. We're going to be looking for the overthrowing of Islam. And then shortly thereafter, a few decades later, we're going to be looking for the converting of the Jews. Then the nations being converted as well leading up to that period of a thousand years, so that there is, there's going to be a, a Daniel talks about a 75-year period of time between the end of the, the apostasy and the time of the millennium. And, and that period of time is when we expect to see um, Armageddon, <clears throat> when the nations are brought to a point uh, where they are... Literally going to be brought to their knees, and then the converting of the Jews and the Gentiles. So we expect prior to the millennium, uh, we actually expect things to be probably at the worst they've ever been, uh, the darkest, the most morally depraved, the most um, <clears throat> the most uh, degraded situations, and finally, uh, you know, a nice big war to cap that off, and then we'll be looking at. Uh, things turning around, and all of that following upon the end of the apostasy. And so while I, I would say you should be uh, 
pessimistic in the short term, you should be looking and trying to understand how longer term things are being uh, set in place for some big change. And um, we may well, uh, some, uh, some of the younger people may well live to see some of that, maybe all of it. Anyway, fourth, besides <clears throat> um, any time of important work to be performed, fourth time when covenanting, a fourth season of covenanting is in times of reviving. Uh, they are transmitted by every gale from heaven, the words of the Redeemer, inviting his spouse, that is his church, individually and socially, uh, to the holy duty of acknowledging him as her Lord. Good Song of Solomon 2.10. So in the reign of Asa, when he was awakened to the words of the prophet, he intended to cleanse the lands of idols, uh, he gathered the people to covenant. Look at Second Chronicles 15, 8 to 12. So, again, uh, times are reviving, right? I mean, in, in, here's the thing. When we talk about the beginning of the millennium, when these nations are no longer deceived by the devil, uh, they are going to enter into covenant. That's an important public work to be performed. But it will also be a time of reviving. In fact, uh, it will be a time when religion is moving from that low point into a high point. Right? It's going to be a time, in some respect, of great hazard and danger. So at the beginning of the millennium, all these things are going to be in place. But the fact is, we're talking about any time of reviving in the church. Revival is a good time <clears throat> to mark with, uh, with taking of covenant. All right, renewing of covenant. Likewise, during the revival under King Josiah, when that awakened awakening uh, instilled in the people a renewed regard for the word of God, they engaged in social covenanting. Second Kings 23, 1-3. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord. And all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. So, there's... Um, <clears throat> 
there's going to be in any time a revival uh, is a good time for covenanting. And we're going to see, by the way, these seasons of covenanting, <clears throat> we're going to see them again when we talk about the National Covenant, we talk about the uh, Solemn League and Covenant, when we talk about the Arkansas Renovation and some of the other covenant renewals that have, have uh, been undertaken by the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in particular. These are all looking forward to that great covenanting that will transpire going into the millennium. Uh, and those covenants we expect, as per the fifth season here, we expect that they will be um, renewed as a matter of maintenance. Because you see, the fifth season is when Friends of Truth unite for its maintenance. That is, for the maintenance of the true religion and the covenant, either in an in corporate or other capacity. They're called to follow the Lord, the leader. I'll look at Isaiah 55, 4. Isaiah 55, 4. <coughs> Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader, and a commander to the people. Yeah, Christ has been given for a witness and for a leader. We're to follow him in that. And he is leading his people in a way of covenanting. He himself covenanted to undertake to, to uh, do for us, and we're to follow him in that example. Um, said of the wicked, against thy covenant they shall covenant. Look at Psalm 83, 5. Yeah, when the, when the Bible says they're confederate against thee, they, what they're saying is that they have uh, covenanted against thy covenant. That's what the wicked have done. And so the fact is, the wicked are always doing what? They're entering into alliances. They're covenanting against God's covenant. And so it behooves the people of God always to covenant. And what ought to be the conduct unitedly of those who individually are interested in the Lord's covenant? Look at Isaiah 56 6. So they're to take hold of the covenant. Now, are they not urged to declare most explicitly by formally taking hold upon it that they've come up to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty? Look at Psalm 89, 18 to 21. Yeah, so we're when we take hold of the covenant, we are joining ourselves to the leader uh, who is the help of the Lord against the mighty. That is, those who have confederated against the covenant of God. We are entering into and renewing covenant with the, the Lord our God, Jesus. 
And thus, when the church needs means to secure what she's gained, like Israel after 17 years in Canaan, and shortly before the death of Joshua, the church and nation renewed the covenant in Shechem. Joshua 24, 25 again. 25, so, Joshua. <clears throat> so again, what do they do? <clears throat> what are they doing to try to maintain what they have? They don't want to backslide. They don't want to lose what they have. They don't want to leave an opening for the enemy. <clears throat> so they covenant. Right? The witnessing church, and we're talking about particularly during this period of great apostasy, uh, the witnessing church has gained much territory and made great progress in binding up the testimony and sealing the law. Look at Isaiah 8, 16. So to this end, we have to enter into covenant to strengthen the stakes. Isaiah 54, 2. Yeah, so the strengthening of the stakes is uh, is really something that's done by covenant, right? They're they're stretched forth and strengthened uh, through covenanting. <clears throat> so the five <clears throat> seasons um, that are most prominent, I think, in Scripture when it's most apropos, most advantageous, most indicative that the church ought to covenant are during those times when there's a great hazard, during times when when the um, uh, the cause of true religion is at a low during times when there's some great or important work that has to be performed, church and state, during times of revival, and then during times when there is a special concern for the maintenance of the true religion. <clears throat> so those are <clears throat> those are all of them <clears throat> what we would call <clears throat> providential calls uh, and that that shows us this is uh, like like um, days of fasting and days of thanksgiving this is occasional it's an occasional ordinance it's not an ordinary thing it's an occasional thing that the church is called to do. And like fasting, like thanksgiving, it is somewhat uh, determined by calls of providence. And in fact, um, very often when we begin to look at these days or these, uh, uh, these covenants and renewal of covenants, very often they're accompanied with both fasting and thanksgiving. And there are reasons for that. If there are preparations that require both 
times of fasting and times of thanksgiving afterward. Right? Times of fasting and preparation, times of thanksgiving afterward. And incidentally, for the same reason, and because there is a covenant renewal going on with respect to the administration of the Lord's Supper, uh, quite ordinarily, the churches have called for days of fasting prior to the Lord's Supper and then days of thanksgiving after the reception of the Lord's Supper. All right. <clears throat> Question three. What are some things that can be predicated of the exercise of covenanting? And as I said, there are, really, there are just two things that I want to point out um, as we finish talking about uh, the, the, um, the theology of covenanting and the, the practice of covenanting before we get into some of the history and, and compare what the Church of Scotland in particular has done um, with respect to this doctrine. So, first, we can say this, that this exercise is advantageous. And it's advantageous in a number of ways. <clears throat> first of all, preparation for covenanting leads to accurate apprehensions of duty. So when you when you are called to covenant, you're going to have to make preparations. And we're saying that that will in turn lead you to have accurate apprehensions of duty. Not only the duty of covenanting, but the duty that is encompassed uh, within the the um, the covenant itself, the conditions of the covenant. I want to look at Job eleven thirteen to fifteen. Yeah. So in in Job in this um, at this point the the admonition is that when we covenant, that we make sure we prepare our hearts, right? That we don't stretch forth our hands unto iniquity. We're not doing something wrong. So we can stand before God with a clear conscience. Our faces are clean before him. So everything that is required for that, in order for you to covenant a right with a clear conscience, a, a clear heart, all of that's going to require you, that preparation will require you to gain accurate apprehensions of the duties. The, the, the duty of covenanting as well as the duties that that covenanting will entail. You am called to think about it beforehand, to meditate upon it. All right, second, number two, it's advantageous because it tends to cherish a devout solemnity of mind. Uh, look at First Chronicles 16, 15. God would have us to be mindful, and by that, uh, he's... 
really, we're being commanded to be circumspect in our thinking. When we think about the covenant, we need to think about not only what went into it, but what's required by it, what we've promised to do and what God has promised to do for us, how promise will meet promise, and there will be a rising of our obedience and his promise to bless and strengthen us in that together. And, and that, that has a tendency to make you cherish a devout solemnity of mind. Right? The, the fact is the world is full of foolishness and frivolity and silliness and stupidity. But the duty of covenanting is drawing you in a very different direction. It will draw you to think about things much more soberly. All right. Third, a third way in which the exercise of covenanting is advantageous is it leads to the comforts of habitual holy communion with God. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 1 9. <clears throat> God is faithful, uh, by whom he recalled into the fellowship of his son. That word fellowship, koinonia, uh, communion, the communion of his son. You're called into communion. And this covenanting is when God tenders his covenant, it's a call to come into communion. When you take hold of it, you are agreeing. Uh, you're you're saying amen to that covenant and you're entering into that and so there is a spiritual comforting <clears throat> that ought to attend that all right the fourth uh, advantageous thing about the exercise of covenanting is it impresses with a sense of increased obligation that furnishes an ardor of mind powerfully impelled to duty Look at Psalm 103.18. Yeah, when, when you enter into the exercise, when you are <clears throat> not only contemplating, but actually assenting to this covenant, right, you're going to be impressed, you should be impressed with a sense of increased obligation. And that, in turn, should work in you a certain mindset that will press you on to duty. You're gonna you're gonna be contemplating how serious a matter this is, how important a thing. <clears throat> All right, fifth, the exercise is advantageous because it tends to unite many in affection and sentiment and zeal for truth. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12. Chronicles 30, 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and the princes and the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so in, in this um, undertaking, 
one of the one of the things that we're looking for in preparation for public social covenanting is that through prayer, through instruction, through fasting, through uh, reading, through praising God together, that we are moved to be more and more of one mind, one sentiment, one heart with respect to the matter that is before us in that covenant. Uh, Sixth, sixth reason the exercise of public social covenanting is uh, advantageous. Actually, all covenanting, really, but uh, we're looking at public social covenanting in particular. Uh, But it presents instruction most solemnly to the young and rising race, uh, leading uh, leading them to inquire concerning it. So, we want to look at Exodus 12, 26. Exodus 12, verse 26. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? Yeah, in other words, when when you enter into this, when the church does this, the younger people are are brought to a point if they haven't really thought about it before. Uh, they're they're brought to a point, just like the Passover, just like uh, the Lord's Supper. They're brought to ask, you know, what is what does this all mean? What are we what are we doing here? What what's going on? And so it it provides an opportunity. Um, from which to catechize and and instruct a rising generation of people. All right. Seventh, uh, this exercise of covenanting is advantageous uh, because it's calculated to arrest for good the attention of society at large. We'll look at Deuteronomy 29, 10 to 12. Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 to 12. You stand this day, O you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, fellow men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, or thy stranger that is in thy camp, the hero of the wood, unto the girl of the water, thou the chinsent, help with the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God, make it with today. Yeah, so again, Covenanting has this effect that it focuses the attention of society at large towards some good end, right? Because you're you're looking at uh, you're looking at the all that is implied by this covenant. We're looking at the grace of God. We're looking at the promise of God. We're looking at the prospect of covenant obedience. We're looking at all of these things which are are good and right and all conducive to the glory of God. Right, eight, this exercise is advantageous uh, because it provides benefits of the most valuable and extensive for generations unborn. We want to look at Deuteronomy 29, 14, and 15, and then Psalms 78, 1 to 8. Deuteronomy 29, 14, and 15. 
neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord of God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. I will deliver them from the hair of the old and dark saying, which you have heard and known by God as a total. We will not pay them their children, the generation of the praises of the Lord. They established the voice of the Lord, which he made of their fathers, and of their children. After the children which should be born, arise and declare them to their children, that they might their hope in God and not Okay, so those are all reasons why I think we can see that there would be some advantage uh, to covenanting. But the second broad thing that I think can be predicated of the exercise of covenanting is it, it's necessary. And, and there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, um, it forms a part of the system of means devised by Jehovah for carrying forward his work, and it must be observed. In other words, God has said to do it, and so we have to do it. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 20. Deuteronomy 10, 20. Thou the Lord thy God, and we know that his work by this and other means will be completed. Uh, Psalm 132.12. Well, thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them. Their children shall also sit upon my throne forevermore. Okay. So what, what we know then is this is a means of grace that God has appointed. God has... He's not only appointed ends, he's appointed means to the ends. He hasn't just said that this is going to come about, but he says it will come about in this manner, in this way. And so if we want the end, we need to use the means. If we don't use the means, there's a great presumption on our part and a disregard for the command of God. He's commanded us to do it. He has said that his work will be completed by doing it, and it, it would be disobedience for us not to. And then the, the second and last thing to consider, and I want to consider just a little more than that first point, uh, though the evils that have occurred in the world have been permitted, yet some are chargeable with blame for committing them, and others are culpable for not having used various means of which covenanting is one in order that they might have been prevented. So I want to look at Psalm 78.10. Psalm 78 verse 10. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. Yeah, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. Right there, so when sin comes into the world, when there's disobedience, right, God, God um, certainly charges those who sin and, and are disobedient uh, with their sins and disobedience. But there's also a culpability, isn't there, if some of that sin and some of that disregard has come into the world because we have disregarded and failed to do that 
which God has appointed in order to um, to restrain and restrict that other disobedience, right? We've given opportunity for disobedience. So we're going to be held culpable. And this is a, a broader concept, of course. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, things we do, uh, we lead other people into, well, we, into temptation or we lead other people into uh, this or that. But the point here with covenanting is, here's a means which God has provided not only to, to um, bless his church, but to restrain his enemies. And if we're not using that, we, we are in some sense culpable. So though the Romish apostasy was permitted, it's the apostasy that we, that we, uh, we see was predicted that will last for 1260 years before it totters to its end. Yet who can tell how far the church of God was culpable in not using enough for its prevention, covenanting. One means directly adapted to that purpose. Look at Jeremiah 11.10. Jeremiah 11.10, So we, we don't know how far. But I think we can say the church, to some extent, is culpable for not covenanting uh, more pointedly, more often, more engaged to resist the Romish apostasy. And who can tell what effect the performance of the duty will have in leading to the good store for the church, which is to come even on earth, and to the prevention of evil which have allowed would arise. Now look at uh, look at Jeremiah fifty verse five and Isaiah forty five twenty three. Okay, so at the end of the day, what we're saying is, you know, on the one hand, we don't know how much evil might have been prevented by more covenanting. On the other, we don't really understand how much good is going to arise from covenanting. And that, again, tells us that there's a necessity that we take this very seriously, that we consider it very soberly. And that we are careful that we don't just dismiss a means that God has appointed for accomplishing his work on the earth. Okay, with all of that then behind us, um, next time, Lord willing, we're going to start looking at the National Covenant and what that, what that entails.